Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we break down the celebration that was the Toronto Raptors rally. How does the Prime Minister balance the Trans Mountain Pipeline as well as a climate emergency? And you will meet the latest Liberal to throw their hat in the ring for the leadership of the Provincial Party. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, Raptor celebration uh, on yesterday, as I'm sure you, we started like, you know, at 10 o'clock thinking, well, maybe we can, you know, uh, run some clips of this at noon and, and the speeches and whatever. And then like we're signing off at three o'clock and they haven't even started yet. They didn't even got to Nathan Phillips Square. Uh, and some were concerned. Uh, the, pro- the, the crowds were unbelievably large. I'm not sure anybody really anticipated the crowd was going to be that large. Uh, for the most part, everything was uh, went off without a hitch. However, there was the shooting uh, in which uh, four people were injured, three people in custody uh, after this happens uh, um, in the Nathan Phillips Square area, just outside the main uh, the main square there. Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert. He's also a former Toronto cop. RossMcLeanSecurity.com. You can check out his Facebook page as well. He's with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you. So what was your uh, what were your thoughts when you were watching this all go down yesterday? Well, which part? The parade or the... Yeah, as, as the whole thing started off and, and as it got going, did anybody anticipate it to being as big as what it did end up being? Well, there is certainly going to be a question about that. I understand the city manager is going to do a review. I know the police will do a review of what they looked at. Um, and, you know, certainly hindsight is the easiest way to judge these things, but... Uh, you look at the size of that crowd and where it was all going and how it had to get there, um, ending up in Nathan Phillips Square. Perhaps it might have been better off at another uh, venue for all the people they had to try to fit in or maybe another way of accommodating it. But, you know, for the most part, Scott, it was uh, the people of the GTA coming together to celebrate something all in good spirits, all in good nature. It wasn't an abusive crowd per se, so they wanted to work with the police. So all in all, I think the police handled the, the crowd management you know, fairly well. I think there's going to be room for uh, some improvement in dealing with some of the medical issues and some of the crushing and, and the venue and that sort of thing. But it was uh, handled fairly well. Is there any way for police or the city to gauge how big these things are going to be? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, you certainly, you'd know what the capacity for Nathan Phillips Square is. You know the capacity of the streets around. You know how big the event is. Uh, You see it forming up. So maybe you perhaps have, like a lot of people do, a plan A and a plan B and a plan C Mm. uh, based on what's going to show up because they they certainly reacted to some things, shutting down subway stations, uh, uh, those sort of things. So they're reacting, but I, I think it really caught everybody uh, by surprise, the, the size of it. But all in all, a very, very well-behaved group uh, on, the, on the celebration day as opposed to the, the winning night. It wasn't quite as good. Um, uh, a lot of people comparing this back to the time of uh, the Jays' wins in 92 and 93. Is that fair, though, considering the city's quite a bit bigger than it is uh, or now and, and a lot of people living in that area now than were back then? Also, social media... Uh, you know, fuels this sort of thing. I mean, people spread the word and, and out it goes. 
Well, yeah. I mean, everybody was down there. I mean, uh, imagine how many videos and pictures were taken, which, by the way, the yeah. police are asking for all of those if you're down near where the shooting was uh, for doing it. But everybody had the video cameras out. They're taking pictures. Everybody. I mean, that was... I mean, that was the deal. So you're right, social media certainly fueled it. We've got a new couple of subway lines that go down that way uh, and everything else. So, And people knew it was coming and it was widely advertised. So, uh, What about the shooting itself? Um, uh, obviously, they jumped on this really, really quickly. Uh, uh, what do we know about the actual event itself, that shooting, that, that the one thing that did mar this day? Well, the police haven't given any direct evidence about anything, but it's fairly easy to surmise um, and look at some of the issues that happened. We had a couple of people who decided to carry uh, uh, loaded handguns down to a celebration. Uh, they decided to fire them off. Four people were shot, another one wounded, sort of running away, a bit of a stampede. So I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that these are not entry-level crimes, that someone just happened to go find their dad's gun somewhere and went downtown and didn't know what to do with it. I'm going to suggest to you, Scott, that this is probably very much gang-related, and uh, I, I very much am uh, going to wonder uh, that it's not tied in, in fact, uh, to the shooting that took place on Friday morning at four at four in the morning on the Friday, where we have a couple of guys who just got off of a murder charge uh, a little while ago, who just got back out, who were involved in that shooting with uh, a bunch of people arrested there. So I think we've got gangs who, as I've talked to you about before, don't really give a hoot about firing off guns in uh, public places and. And Scott, this is a place where a stray bullet, yeah. where that took place, you had in that, in that area, you had the Prime Minister, you had the Premier, yeah. you had the Mayor, you had all of the basketball stars, you had uh, Drake, who's another story in himself about how he deals with this, and you had certainly uh, innocent people all around who could have quite easily, mm-hmm. quite easily caught one of those bullets, quite easily. Is this less about the city celebration and and such and more uh, about the ongoing gang activity there? And as you said, um, and, you know, I was listening to Joe Warmington earlier today on with uh, Bill Kelly. It's like uh, he said this shooting probably would have happened whether the Raptors were having a parade or not or alluded to some sort of uh, uh, suggestion of that. Uh, this is just the reality of Toronto nowadays, is it not? Well, when you see big public activities going on, concerts, uh, Drake celebration before, uh, uh, we've, we've had them before where, guess what, the gangbangers like to go out and they like to play and uh, spend their money and do their stuff and also come across other gangbangers who they run into and they decide that they're either hunting for them or they just want to shoot them because uh, they're on the other team. You know, so I, I don't think it's any accident that they were uh, that they were down there, that they were carrying weapons, yeah. and that they decided to uh, shoot them. I, I think we've got a, a, a real problem that uh, the police are, are left with now, trying trying to deal with. And I, I, I really seriously, Scott, I think it's only going to continue to get worse. You chose the words "left" to deal with. What does that mean? Well, we have the justice system that, that, is, that is going on in this country, the entire system. As you know, I've talked with Chief Saunders yep. many times before. I've heard him say it. We've got a catch-and-release justice system where we're dealing with these issues where you've got these recidivist uh, gangbangers who the cops all know who they are, mm-hmm. who, who, who uh, if they arrest them, you've got sometimes activist judges who decide to let them go for certain reasons or not allow uh, evidence in on an activist basis. I don't have too much time to go into that, but the Supreme Court just did 
uh, one of those cases where they accused a policeman, essentially because he spoke in a stern manner to a guy that was carrying a gun and drugs, that he was under psychological arrest, and that wasn't a proper thing for the police to do. Hmm. So they dismissed the charges against the guy. So you've got the courts, activist judges. Uh, you have uh, bail conditions with people getting back out. I, I think it's time, really, Scott, that... Uh, and maybe, uh, I'm not sure who's going to take the lead on this, perhaps Premier Ford needs to take the lead on this, uh, put together uh, a task force of some people, uh, let's say Chief Saunders, and you know, how about that guy named Ron Tavner who knows a thing or two about gangs and uh, shootings, who he's been locking them up for the last uh, number of years, and someone from the RCMP, and give some absolute serious recommendations for how legislation needs to be changed in order to deal with these gangsters. Because right now, um, you know, federally, we've got Bill C-75 out in front of us, Scott. For people who don't follow that, who has the time, uh, it's reducing uh, major serious crimes like human trafficking and terrorism down to dual offenses, summary conviction offenses. You could get a fine for a terrorist offense hmm. under this new Bill C-75 that's coming through. So our legislation in the system is letting down uh, the general public and these uh, these crazy shooters are going to continue to do it. Uh, Ross, how much do you know about the threats in regard to uh, high schools in the Toronto area, bomb threats, such? I mean, is this typical end of uh, end of uh, school year stuff? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends. I'm not sure if they're writing any exams or doing any work uh, these weeks at the schools, but it's certainly it's a serious offense. I understand one of the calls came directly into the police department uh, for dealing with it. Um, I hope that the police have some sort of technology that they'll be able to track down who did this and find who's responsible for it, because it's massively disruptive. And it leads to further problems, uh, Scott, like we'd see with down in the States. And I think we had one or two of them up here with the swatting, where you call in, someone's got a yeah. gun at a location, the yeah. police go in and someone maybe gets shot. Uh, and the police are you know, just trying to do their job. So I think it's a very serious offense. And once again, the sort of thing that needs to be dealt with, if you're going to cause... Uh, public disruption uh, in this way. We need some laws to deal with this. Some serious uh, upgraded charges above mischief. Uh, we need some charges, I think, to deal with these gangs, something along like they have in the States, the RICO Act, which is uh, for organized crime that allows the police to lay heavier charges, get bigger sentences, and uh, be able to convict much easier. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe the Premier will take the lead. It doesn't look like anybody else is taking the lead on this. Uh, getting back to what has happened with uh, the event yesterday in Toronto, what will police learn from this? What will city officials take away from this? Well, look, it's uh, the police know exactly what's going on. They know exactly what's going on. I've talked to the homicide guys before, and they know who's committing some of these homicides, but they can't get witnesses to convict them. Um, they know what's going on with it. Uh, unfortunately, and I'm not saying this, uh, that a police officer is telling me this, but you're running into the game of FIDO, which is uh, forget about it, drive on, don't respond, don't do aggressive policing because you're going to be held responsible for it. You're going to be called names. It's going to hurt your career. So I, th I think we need to get, uh, serious about dealing with this crime. And as I said, uh, we'll find out yet who the victims were to these crimes. Four were shot. Who's to say that it was the targets that the bad guys were shooting at? Mm. We might find out that it was somebody's uh, valedictorian daughter down there celebrating who's been a Raptors fan, yeah. who now isn't going to be right for the rest of her life because she's got a hole that went through her and damaged organs. We don't know that yet. So I guess we can wait to hear about that. But 
Uh, I think this is very serious stuff when you can have somebody walking down the street and just decides to pull out a gun and a beef and fire it off. And you know what? Th- those coppers who rode in on that, it must have been like a rodeo, Scott. It looks like the bike cops were right there, rode up and it jumped off their bikes, tackled this guy, gun in hand, and took it off of him. Uh, when he was down there, they're lucky no one was shot at that time. That yeah, was there so was the, there was video footage of uh, it looked like three or four jumping him, and where they came from, how they saw him, who knows, you know. Well, this, this is the skill set, though, and something else you'll notice that the police are doing now, changing their tactics. Scott is while those coppers are down there jumping on the bad guy. This happened at the shooting up at uh, Young and Gould too. The other ones are deploying around them and taking out their firearms and standing watch over them. While they're doing that, that didn't used to be a standard procedure. But because we now have people that want to jump in with cell phones or stick their noses in the middle of the arrests, uh, this is the way that the police are being trained now. It's it's really a it's really a a bigger stance to deal with the aggressiveness and the violence that's going on. So cheers to those coppers who ran into uh, fire there and made that tackle. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, talking about the celebration uh, Raptors victory parade and rally yesterday in Toronto. Ross, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Be safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, today marks the deadline on the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It's expected to go through and the announcement expected to be made uh, this afternoon after the markets close. What does it all mean? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. So, Marvin, what is difference? Uh, what is the difference between this process and others in the past uh, as this has been approved? before. What, what What's different today? Well, if you don't mind, let me just take you back before we go forward. It was in 2016 that the Liberal cabinet, the same cabinet, or more or less the same cabinet that Justin Trudeau has today, approved the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. At that time, it was owned by Kinder Morgan. Uh, Kinder Morgan then began to do some work, and an opponent uh, went to court and sought an injunction, a stop work order, And the argument made to the court was that the federal government had not done the appropriate amount of consultation with First Nations communities. So we stopped the work, the hearing was held, and in 2018, a little over a year ago, the court ruled that that's correct. You didn't properly consult with these First Nations communities, so you've got to go back. Everything's frozen, you've got to go back. The federal government then hired a retired Supreme Court Justice Frankie Akabuchi to do a consultation process. He brought in 60 different consultants, went back to those First Nations communities, uh, heard their concerns, brought them forward, took them to the engineers, tried to incorporate them into the pipeline design, and then they took that to cabinet. This decision was supposed to have been rendered in May, about a month ago, but again, fearing that uh, uh, they, they don't want to short-circuit the due diligence process, the federal cabinet said, we're going to wait another month, uh, talk to Jason Kennedy, the premier, Kenny, excuse me, the premier of Alberta. He was in full agreement because he says, we don't want to go through this again. And I suspect today they're going to say, yes, okay, we're ready to do this, let's, let's go twinning. Uh, one key difference, of course, is that over those three years, no longer does Kinder Morgan own the pipeline. It's actually owned by you and I, the Canadian government. Um, but nonetheless, I don't think that will be considered a conflict of interest. I'm sure the cabinet is going to approve it later this afternoon. Does that mean it's going to instantly be built? Well, no, it would take roughly three to four years to build it. In other words, we may still be talking about this before the next federal election in uh, 2023. 
could come online as early as late 2021, but I suspect, again, there will be court challenges. Uh, we'll see if there's a stop work order this time around. Uh, so are we to believe everything is copacetic now? What was done to appease it this time? Well, the hearings were properly held. The concerns were properly documented. Uh, that doesn't mean that everyone's happy. There is a, a First Nations group who uh, who still worry that the current Trans Mountain Pipeline, the one that's already in place, uh, threatens one of its aquifers, an aquifer that contributes 90% of the fresh water to the reserve. Therefore, they... Uh, they're not opposed to it being built, but they want a different route, and they want the existing pipeline recited as well. Um, no one thinks that's going to become part of this plan, but that will be the basis of their court challenge down the road. I, I think the bottom line here is the federal government has no choice uh, in this bat matter. I, I'm sure they're going to approve it, even though they are an environmentally friendly group of people, because uh, the current pipeline is full. I think this is important for people to understand. The existing Trans Mountain Pipeline is full. It's fully moving oil every single day of its life. And the expansion would triple the capacity. They're going to twin it, meaning they're going to run the second pipeline right beside the first pipeline. It is a little hard, hard to argue here that there's a greater environmental threat. If this was virgin land they were using, but if they're putting it right beside the existing pipeline, it's hard not to see it going forward. And also, this is a government, the liberals in Ottawa, that need to win some friends uh, in Alberta, even though they won't win any friends in B.C. Uh, they need to be seen as doing something. So I'm sure it's going to get approved, but in terms of it making a substantial difference to Alberta, it's still two or three years down the road. Uh, will there be more delay along the way? Is this sort of the final frontier and, and we move forward, or is this just going to be continuous delay? Yeah. Well, some are wondering if it's death by delay. Yeah, so that's a very good point, uh, and I wish I had a good answer for you on that, Scott. Obviously, we live in a world where anyone can bring a court challenge at any time about anything, um, uh, and I do expect there will be challenges. Uh, there are clearly environmentalists who are opposed to pipelines in general and the twinning of this pipeline specifically and the fact that it's moving oil sands oil, which they see as dirty oil that would be better left in the ground. There, there's no doubt going to be people bringing lawsuits. Now, whether those will lead to cease and desist notices, uh, stop doing things until we hear the court challenge, or keep building while we hear the court challenge, uh, I, I don't know how the courts are going to rule. So you're, you're correct. That is a philosophy today that many environmentalists have, is go ahead, try to build the thing, but we're going to tie you up in so much red tape, it'll be a frosty Friday in hell before you ever see the, see the thing operating. I don't know which way this is going to play out. How will the Prime Minister's supporters view uh, this approval, um, uh, especially while declaring a climate emergency? Yeah. Well, this, this is the really the interesting challenge of our time. I, I, I think of your listeners listening to us, I would like to believe 75, 80% of them would agree that there is some sort of a climate issue out there, whether it's an absolute climate emergency, but some kind of a, a climate issue out there, and that we would all be much better off if we would move away, develop a low-carbon strategy to living. But the problem is that's not what we have today, and that's not what we have for the foreseeable future. We still need oil, not just to fuel cars and airplanes, what have you, 
But remember all these plastics that yeah. we like using in our business, in our world, they all come from petroleum. So, you know, I look forward 50 years. I can see us reducing our dependency, but I don't see it happening in the next two years, three years, five years, ten years. Um, meanwhile, you have a province, Alberta, that does still rely heavily on the petrochemical sector. It has been hurting because of low oil prices in the world. There was a little bit of cheer earlier this year when oil got over $60 a barrel, but now it's back down to 53 That's not good news for that economy. And they're saying to Ottawa, look, you know, you, you were worried about the aerospace sector. You helped out Bombardier. You were worried about this. You helped those people out, SNC-Lavalin. What are you doing for us? And that's the balancing act. I, I don't think Justin Trudeau has changed his mind about climate change, but there's also the practicality that we aren't going to get there overnight. And in the meantime, we have a commodity, Alberta oil, which has a world market. There are lots of people in the world who'd like to buy it. Their problem is getting it. Uh, and I would also quickly note, by the way, if we don't build this pipeline, that oil isn't staying in the ground. It's coming out, but it's getting shipped to the coast in train cars. Millions yeah. of train cars. And, yeah. uh, you know, I remember Lac-Megantic, this little mm-hmm. town in Quebec that burned to the ground because of a derailment. As bad as an oil spill might be out of a pipeline, it didn't burn a, a, a town to the ground. So, you know, this is all about balancing, I think. It's not about absolutes. Uh, very good point. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Kinder Morgan originally owned this pipeline, then the government bought it. What What's the future there? Is there somebody lining up to buy it once we build it? What happens then? Yeah, well, you know, if you build it, they will come. I think in this situation that might be true. Um, Kinder Morgan was an American company, an American company based in a state called Texas, uh, Texas, where big oil reigns supreme. You want something done, you get it done, you know. And here we are, uh, Kinder Morgan, doing business in Canada, and they were getting these mixed messages. The government saying they wanted to twin it, but then they didn't want to do this. And so Kinder Morgan said, look, we're just going to walk away from all of this. So our federal government said, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, no, don't do that. Uh, you know, what can we do? We even offered to help finance the construction to keep them interested. No, we've had enough of doing business in Canada, we're walking away. So our federal government bought it. Now, uh, I think at the moment they could certainly sell the existing pipeline. There'd be more than enough people who'd love a a fully active, fully full pipeline and and the uh, money that can be generated from it. And certainly if the twinning happened and the capacity was tripled, there'd be people in the market. But in the right at this moment, I think there's a lot of people still quite skeptical about doing business in Canada, especially oil business in Canada. And, and I think they would become much more willing to step forward with their billions of dollars once construction began or as construction neared completion than they would be today. So I don't think for the next six months to a year you're going to see any change in ownership. It'll still be a crown corporation. But ultimately, I think the government will want to sell this. Um, and in fact, an interesting question, which I've never heard put to Andrew Shear, what would be his opinion on this? Would he keep it or would he sell it? I think ultimately the government wants to get out of this business, but in the meantime it's a bridge to try to make some things happen when the private sector got scared. So uh, when it is time, to, and, you, you, and you can see why nobody wants to touch it until it's built and oil's flowing through it for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. that being said, uh, once we do sell it at that point, if completed, is it something we make money on? Is it something we lose money on? Well, I think some of that will boil down to the cost of the construction. Um, a few years ago, in, in 2016, the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline was built as a $7.4 billion project. Today, it's being built as a $9.3 billion project. And, 
you know, if we can keep the construction costs under control, then there's no reason to think we can't sell it at a profit. But if during the construction, again, there were lots of delays and cost overruns, which are not unusual when it comes to government projects, uh, whether we'd ever get all of our money back out of it, I, I wouldn't want to bet on that. But it all comes down to project management. You do it right, you can make money at this. If you don't do it right, no, you might lose money. Uh, you talked about how this is a twinning of an already existing pipeline, that you're not going through virgin forest, uh, that sort of thing. Is this more reason why there should be an energy corridor of some sort? Well, again, you, you raise a good point. I, I'm not sure the average person listening to us understands that we already have many, many thousands of miles of pipelines in this country. Uh, Enbridge, uh, another name that you sometimes hear when you talk about pipelines, is just completing an expansion of its Line 3 pipeline. This uh, takes oil from the west into Ontario and even further east. And when I say expansion, they didn't lay... Uh, new pipeline. They didn't twin pipeline. They took the existing pipeline and put in put in a bigger pipeline. Right. So they went from let's say it was a twenty inch diameter to a forty inch diameter or whatever it happened to be. I, I think that kind of thing makes great sense to me. Again, I understand environmentalists saying we should rip up all pipelines and get rid of them. But if we're going to have them, if we can keep them on the land where they are currently no longer risk other virgin land, land that we've already know how to manage and that we have managed in the case of Enbridge for the better part of 30 years. And not perfectly, there have been the odd spills, but at least, again, they know what they're doing here. They know how to operate it. I think that makes some sense. I, I get more concerned with brand new, fresh pipelines over brand new territory. Is that the wisest thing we can do? But if we say, look, we've already committed this, it's like a, it's like a, a transmission line for power. We've built the towers. We've got the high-voltage lines. If we need to expand and add more lines, let's put them over the existing towers rather than building new towers. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me, and it's a nice, again, balancing act in this world of environmentalism. Do you think the Trans Mountain Pipeline will be the last one to be built in Canada? Well, I'm going to say no because, uh, remember, there's this other <laughs> thing that you've heard of called Keystone XL, yeah. that uh, one step forward, one step back. Uh, and I actually can't quite tell you where that all stands today. As far as I know, the uh, Canadian portion is being built. The American portion is partially being built, but there's still some siting issues there in the Midwest. And I don't want to tell you if it's Nebraska or Kansas, but one of those areas where there's still some issues. But uh, now we have a race to see which one will be the last one. But I think once those two are completed, the Twinina Trans Mountain and the Keystone XL, then yes, it may be a long, long time before we see another totally new pipeline. We may see others expanded and refurbished and modernized, but a totally new one, no. I think these will be the last two. How do you justify uh, the Trans Mountain and, and, and going west, but not an Energy East pipeline? I mean, at the end of the day, we're having this discussion and, and breaking down why we're even bothering with the Trans Mountain. Now that we've proved that that, that, that can be successful and is the way to go, does that not justify the Energy East for the same reasons? I mean, look what we import off the East Coast every day. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, you're, in a way you're talking to the choir here. I would agree with you. That does seem to make an awful lot of sense. Um, I, I felt uh, Quebec, now remember there was a different premier and a different government in Quebec who had raised concerns about the Energy East pipeline. We have a new premier and a new government. Not quite sure where that government stands on revisiting that issue and looking at expanding some of that. It, it just seems to me that Canada is a country that could, if it wanted to be, 
totally self-sufficient in oil. We wouldn't have to import any of it. We have enough reserves. Now, again, I understand there are people who are concerned that the reserves we have are dirty oil, that we have to extract it in an environmentally unfriendly way, but energy efficiency in the world that we live in today certainly reduces uh, other kinds of of political risks uh, when you deal with countries like Iran and Iraq and, and Russia, even for that matter, or Venezuela. And so, you know, it makes sense. I can see this from a self-sufficiency standpoint. Uh, but again, it's always these trade-offs that while it fixes the one side, what does it do on the environmental front? And and for those people who are, who are suggesting that the world belongs to electric cars, you know, it is possible, Scott, that within 10 years, we'll all be driving electric vehicles. We won't be buying the gasoline in the volumes that we were. And you might wonder why we build the pipeline. I just have a hard time looking at the volume of cars we're selling today and seeing it turn that fast. I can see it in 50 years. I can't see it in 10. Therefore, I think these are still valid things to be talking about. And, you know, you bring up a a very valid point in the timeline here. It's not just about, uh, with petroleum products, uh, oil and gasoline and things that we put in our vehicles. It's the products that that we use every day, which is one of the reasons the oil coming out of Alberta uh, out of the tar sands is as valuable as it is is because it's used to make other things other than just what goes in your car. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look around your house, look at plastic. Plastic is just everywhere. Lots of different kinds of plastic, but whether it's in food yeah. containers or medical containers or, or you know, items we use within our house, uh, films and sheeting and so on and so forth, in your computers, in your smartphone, it is everywhere. And I don't see that demand changing, even if we change uh, from oil as a major fuel source to something different like electricity. Those other uses of plastics are still going to be there. Uh, so any idea when shovels will be in the ground for this pipeline? Well, well, uh, a couple of things on that front. I guess first thing people should know is that some of Trans Mountain is already being built. Um, even though the court issued a cease and desist order back in 2018, they did allow them to do some work near the terminals. Now, if you can imagine, a terminal is at the starting point and at the ending point, and so there's been a certain amount of stuff already built at the starting point and the ending point. Um, assuming this gets approved, then I'm sure there is a project structure. It's kind of like building the Red Hill Creek or building the LRT, you have a plan about what sections get built when, what you can you build in the winter, what would be too inaccessible that you would only be able to build it in the summer. And so I think you'd see some shovels in the ground as quickly as this fall in, in those things where they can at least work during the winter months. Some of the more mountainous areas, they'll be limited to the summer, and I'm sure those will be the last sections to be completed in 2021, 2022. But, uh, yes, I think you can see shovels in the ground. Because, Scott, there's another thing people don't realize. 40% of the pipe they need for the pipeline has already been purchased as in storage. Yeah. So they don't have to worry about getting it made. It's just sitting there on the ground ready to be installed. So in the easily accessed places and places where they can work during the winter months, I, I think you'll see construction begin before the end of this year. And for the liberals, I think that's another critical thing. Uh, as much as they've delayed this decision from May until June, I think they want to be able to demonstrate uh, by October that something's actually happening on this file so they can take it 
to Alberta and say, look, you know, we aren't just twiddling our thumbs. This is real activity happening. That's why I think you'll see some things happening very quickly. How does, last question, how will this decision affect the Prime Minister politically for the reasons you just said? I mean, um, he's purchased this, so, you know, that decision's been made. Uh, delay, d- d- does that does that hinder uh, more than it helps once, the, you know, once yeah. you've, you've made these decisions, just go through with it, make it happen, whether it's the right one or the wrong one. How do you think this affects him politically? So, Scott, I hate to tell you this, but I, I believe that in the world today there are, are basically three types of people. There's about, let's call it 30, 40 percent of people who like Justin Trudeau and think he's trying to do his best job. There's another 30, 40 percent who hate Justin Trudeau, who thinks he's not up to the job, but he's not as advertised. And then there's this group, 20 percent in the middle, who, who swing a little bit. Now, dirty, during the Jody Wilson-Ray Bold thing, they were swinging against him. Ooh, but, you know, that's become old news. This is the kind of thing that some of them might say, well, okay, look, i got to give the guy credit. He's done some things. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the, with the marijuana file. So I, I don't think it hurts him. I also don't think he gets a big bounce out of this because for those people who already dislike him, this doesn't change their opinion. For those who do like him, it doesn't change. It's only that small group in the middle, 20%, who are undecided. And, and by the way, you know, there's a lot more between now and the election in, in uh, October that will make up their mind. This is a log on the fire, but it's not the whole fire. Plus, once you buy it, your decision's pretty much made, isn't it? Well, correct. Uh, and, and I also don't think Andrew Scheer is going to uh, campaign on reversing this. Jagmeet no. Singh might, but I don't think uh, Andrew Scheer is going to fight on this. He feels he's got other things to fight on. He already has a beautiful quote from Trudeau talking about plastics and how his own family tried to reduce their consumption. He's going to trot that out during the campaign. This one is not an issue for him. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, we spoke about Michael Coteau, and this is the MPP putting his name into the ring to lead the Ontario Liberals next time uh, around. I believe he is the third candidate now. Uh, Let's bring in Michael Coteau. He is a former cabinet minister with the Wynn government, MPP for Don Valley East, and is with us now. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. So uh, let's talk about this. When is the convention? When do, you guys, when do you guys and girls get to decide a new leader? How is all of that shaping up? So the convention will be next spring, and um, we just came out of a convention where we set the date uh, for March, and um, we're ready to, uh, to, to rebuild a party in between and uh, select a new leader and uh, build an alternative for Doug Ford in 2022. So why are you jumping into the ring? Why are you throwing your hat in? Well, three reasons. Number one, I think that we need to restore some decency in Ontario. Today, for example, uh, we learned that uh, an entrepreneurship program for young people was cut yesterday. Uh, 300 300, uh, people at Erin Oaks, the Autism uh, Treatment Centre for Children, uh, was, uh, you saw 300 people get the uh, pink slip. Um, There's a a, a real decay of uh, public discourse and politics in Ontario today. Uh, and the relationship between uh, the, the politicians and the people of Ontario has decayed, decayed uh, and, and there's been, a, 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 I would say, that a, a decay of decency. Um, and um, I believe that I have the experience uh, both uh, professionally and, uh, and also uh, in, an, at a personal level to, uh, to help lead this party back into uh, a position where we can present an alternative to Doug Ford. Uh, in 2022, and uh, which will be based on 
making sure that the values we, we hold as Ontarians are brought forward and we double down on the concept that, you know, we're stronger when we work together as, uh, as Ontarians. Uh, many, uh, of, I'm playing devil's advocate here, Michael, many uh, will remember uh, 15 years of liberal rule with Dalton McGuinty and then Kathleen Wynne. Uh, are we over that? What, what, what's to be done different a year later? Or I guess it'll be longer than that by the time the election yeah. rolls around. But at well, the end of the day, what's, diff- long- what's different now? Yeah. So there's a huge difference in Ontario today. There's, uh, there's, it, we seem to have a government that's turned its back on the people of Ontario. You know, we hear more about uh, six-pack politics than we do about programs for children and youth. Uh, when you start to see programs like breakfast programs or uh, post-secondary libraries, uh, health care, all these cuts that are coming in, but at the same time, the Doug Ford government is spending more than the Liberals ever did. Their budget's higher, and we're getting less. And there's been a shift in, 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 in who gets more, and we've seen, you know, that that $3 million that's being cut from social services and children youth services and other programs uh, being shifted over to corporate tax cuts. Uh, to me, we have a problem in Ontario, and we need to restore decency and get, it, get a government that's back in, that's doing the work on behalf of the people. Are you concerned that people may, you know, listening to what you're saying, and if maybe the current government isn't what they had thought it was or, or planned for or, 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 or such, uh, how, how do you win over those that still remember the past? Are you worried that the NDP is, is, is going to move in on that? So the, the challenge with the NDP, the NDP are so locked into ideology, it doesn't allow them to be flexible when it comes to managing the economy, managing programs in government, you need a government that's prepared to look at uh, where the opportunities are, where the challenges are, and to be flexible enough to uh, make decisions that are in the best interest of Ontarians. With the new economy and the challenges that AI and automation and job displacement, you know, our challenges around literacy and, and affordability and education, healthcare, I believe you need a government that uh, is in the, in the middle that represents the most, the best interest of Ontarians, and is not being pulled, you know, into onto one side just by default or the other side, uh, being locked into like you know conservative ideology. You need a government that's prepared to take on those challenges in a way that's flexible enough to make those adjustments to best position Ontario for success. Uh, you use the word center, I believe. Many have said the center is gone. And I remember having uh, this discussion with Kathleen Wynne uh, in, in her, her last days as premier and, and, yeah. and asked her whether she was concerned that she had continually taken, you know, quite consciously the party to the left, farther to the left, farther to the left. Usually when the NDP started to make some noise, uh, you know, uh, it seemed the liberals would just turn even farther left and cut them off at the past. Uh, where is the center? I mean, uh, where is yeah. many many thought the Liberal Party was the center, and yet just kept veering left and veering left and veering left. Uh, is there anybody that's interested in bringing it back to the center? Well, I, when I think about um, where we need to be in Ontario today, I think we need stability, and we need to um, we need to increase the uh, the, the public uh, public discourse and and bring some some real decency into that conversation. There's been an erosion in that area. I believe that uh, stability brings predictability, and uh, we need to build a party that's not locked into, you know, these classifications of left, right, center, uh, but more about uh, what, are, what are our values in Ontario. So there's a couple of things that I think we should be doing. I think that we should be trying to manage our deficit and our budget, and we should be aiming to balance budgets. 
we should be looking towards making sure that uh, we maximize our human capital in the province of Ontario so people get opportunities to, you know, to build and, and find success. I think as, uh, as, 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 uh, as liberals, I think Cretchen said it best. You know, when the NDP think you're, you're too right and the Conservatives think you're too left, you're in the perfect spot. You know, you're a liberal. And um, we, need to, we need to build a, a government that is just not locked into these default ways of doing things, but a government that, uh, that takes the economy seriously, that takes affordability uh, seriously, and is flexible enough to really leverage the, the, the benefits that the new economy is bringing and position Ontario for success. So I don't want to buy into that, you know, that left-right argument, but rather what's best for Ontario and how do we focus on those big issues, those several issues that are big issues, that unite all of us together, like education and healthcare. You know, to be honest, Michael, I don't think Canadians or Ontarians want to venture down that left-right battle, but I think the politicians have taken us all there by making us choose either it's the extreme this or the extreme that. Well, for far too, I think you're absolutely right. For far too long, uh, those on the extreme left and those on the extreme right have controlled the, the, the political discourse in this province. And it's actually happening not only in Ontario, but in Canada, North America, around the world. It's time for us to return to, uh, to restore decency in Ontario, to fight for, uh, for decent people who are working hard, to fight for those big issues. Like when we talk about those big issues, big issues like health care and education and the economy, making sure that we defend our rights. You know, when we compromise one person's rights, all of our rights are compromised. We need to stand up for those basic human rights. We need to make sure that uh, people clean up their own mess. And, uh, you know, the, the, the left and the right sometimes overcomplicate the, the whole climate change argument. It's simple to me. Uh, if you make a mess, you should, you should clean up your mess. If a company's dumping stuff or making, you know, putting stuff into the air, they have a responsibility to help clean that up. I think that uh, the extremes have been, have been controlling these, uh, these arguments, and I think it's time for Ontarians to stand up to, to elect a, a party and help build that party uh, with uh, with liberals, uh, so it reflects the needs of Ontarians, and to uh, and to build build a party that is going to focus on what the majority of Ontarians want, and that's to, re- to restore decency and to restore the values that built this province. And uh, and uh, I think the Liberal Party is the party to do that. Uh, without, uh, I know this is we're doing exactly what you're hoping we were not doing. But do you th- do you feel <laughs> do you feel that your party is partially responsible for this for 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 taking the Liberal Party in Ontario so far to the left? And again, I remember having this conversation with Kathleen well, I, Wynne, and I think a lot of people are upset about that. I think you know, I think I, there was no way yeah. to tell the two apart. And 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 are you concerned moving forward now that the Greens? Have, have started to make uh, an impact? Are you worried that they're all going to divide the left? So it's interesting. You know, you go to parts of Ontario and you speak to people, they say the Liberals moved too left. And then you go to other parts, they'll say, you know, selling off a of hydro was way too right. So it's interesting. Um, perspective, uh, it changes in different regions and as you speak to, to people. Um, I always like to think that if you look at the 15-year record, of I think the, the selling off a of hydro. Market, I think the selling off a of hydro was just a bad mistake all around. I don't think it was left, and, right, or I think it was just poor, poor planning, poor and, politics. And I think most Ontarians would agree with you. And I think that was one of the pivotal, 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 pivotal points that allowed Ontarians to say to themselves, "You know what? The values that Ontarians have don't align with the Liberal Party." And I think it was a mistake for us to go down that direction. And I've been clear about that in the past, but it's one, it was one of those changing points where uh, we as Ontarians uh, uh, didn't look at the Liberal Party as the party that, uh, that really uh, held that same value. And, it's, and I think that 
liberals and good Ontarians always believed that, um, you know, these, uh, these public resources were best in, in the hands of the public. And um, uh, we, need to, uh, we need to restore some of those values that helped define liberals in the past. And I think it's something that liberals, uh, liberals want to continue to do. How concerned are you about the Greens uh, making the noise that they are making? Lots have suggested that they've become, you know, the third-party protest vote, perhaps knocking uh, NDP off in certain areas, or I guess depending on what the political climate is. How how concerned are the Liberals about the Greens? Can you out-green the Greens? Well, it's interesting. The Green Party is growing in popularity in Ontario, and we've seen it take a uh, a lot of support from the NDP. I think they're almost tied in the polls today um, in, in Ontario. We've seen the gains that they've made um, uh, across Canada and PEI, places like that. And, uh, I think that um, uh, people are, uh, you know, people are looking for change. And uh, people, you know, people are fed up with, with politics in general. Um, and uh, they want to see some change. But I think that we have probably the most unique opportunity as uh, as Ontarians to build a party from the ground up, a new Liberal Party, um, that is built uh, and aligned with what Ontarians want. And it's a great opportunity. And this, this party's been around for, for, you know, as long as the country's been here, and it's, uh, it's helped build uh, this beautiful province. And I think that it has a place in the, the hearts and minds of Ontarians in that we need, to, uh, we need to invest into the Ontario Liberal Party as Ontarians uh, to make sure that it continues to play a role but we need to make sure that people of Ontario uh, can trust the party, that the policies align with what people want, and it focuses on the big issues that you know that are affecting people's lives. Uh, do you think the Liberal Party realizes, understands why it was defeated in the last election? I think over the last year, um, we've been asking that question. There are many different theories on why it happened. Uh, some people say, you know, populism. Some people say the way you know social media works. Uh, some people have uh, even given credit to organizations like uh, Ontario Crowd. Uh, if some people have said it's because of 15 years and because of the policies of Kathleen Wynne and McGinty and the scandals, like there's so many different reasons. But I think the bottom line is this: is that uh, people were at a point in Ontario where they wanted to see change, and when change comes, it, it, it's a very strong force, and um, uh, they got that change. Now. Um, I think people are having a bit of uh, buyer's remorse with Doug Ford. Everywhere he seems to be going, people are booing him. I've never seen that in, uh, in politics in Ontario before, even with the, uh, the lowest ratings of any politician. Um, people are upset with the decisions he's made. It's not aligned with where Ontarians want to go. Um, so, like I said, um, you know, uh, I don't think we need to focus on, uh, on, on uh, trying to figure out exactly why, but we know the main reasons uh, of it. And um, there was just a breakdown of, uh, of trust, and, uh, and, uh, and the party was not connecting to people anymore. People felt like they were not being listened to. But I think we need to move forward recognizing that and build a party that's based on what Ontarians want. And any leader, who, anyone who becomes the leader of this party, has to always remember that they're there speaking on behalf of the membership and on behalf of Ontarians. And when you're making policy decisions where 70%, 80% of Ontarians disagree with it, you're not heading in that right direction. And I think that you could never break away from, you know, where Ontarians want to be and where your party is. There has to be an alignment. 
Um, you know, I, I don't know, Michael. I, I'm, I'm certainly not a politician, but I've been watching them for a long time. And it, it really, you know, I've never seen things as divisive as they have been in, in an awfully long time. And it just seems that now we live in a world of extremes. And, you know, I've said to many political experts, the person, the leader, the party, the whatever, who can, who, who can, who can unite the center again and, and, and bring, and again, you know, a lot of people may refer to that as the mushy middle. It's not. It's staying in the center and representing a bit of everything as opposed to an extreme left or an extreme right. Um, are we going to see this next election? Are we going to see some... Um, some, I hate to say common sense, but some centering of politics, or are we going to see more of the same sort of characters that, that have... Uh, I, that I have... think that on Terrence, I think they're fed up with uh, that polarization. Uh, the pendulum uh, swings so extreme to the left and right today, um, and it doesn't allow for that stability needed uh, in government so people can have predictability and build programs and you know make decisions like if they're going to go to school or not based on you know, some stability in, in, in post-secondary funding. My daughter said to me, when I said to her, uh, she's 13, and I said to her that I wanted to pursue this, um, she said, why? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, politics is so nasty, it's very mean. And I thought to myself, how did we get to a point in Ontario where a 13-year-old girl looks at politics mm. and tells her father, who's involved in this, that he shouldn't do it because it has become so nasty and so mean. If she can see that so clearly, Ontarians can see that clearly. And it's time for us in Ontario, people who feel like they've been left out, people who feel like they haven't been represented, people who feel like they haven't been utilized in, in regards to building this province, it's time for us to come together and say no more. We will not let the, we will not let the extremes dictate public policy in this, in this province anymore. And we're going to come together, we're going to focus on what's ma- what matters, those big issues, and we're going to restore decency in Ontario and build an Ontario that provides opportunity for everyone. And that's what I'm about. Uh, and uh, that's what I want to bring into this uh, into this uh, leadership contest. Well said. You know, I've often said, you know, people complain when we end up with a too, left, too far left or a too far right government. Well, it usually follows something that is too far left or too far right. That's how we got to the extreme in the first place. So, you know, right. uh, I, I'm delighted to hear that you're going to try to bring that party more to the center because really I, I, I think that's what's, 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 uh, what's terribly lacking in, in politics on both the provincial and the, uh, and the federal level, level at this point. Uh, two other people in the race right now. How many people are you expecting by the time this all comes to a head in 2020 of March? You know what? I think the more the merrier. It will be a great opportunity for diversity of issues and uh, and ideas. Uh, there's three so far. I hope that there's seven or eight at least by the time we get into uh, the cutoff date and uh, that we can move forward with a healthy discussion and that we can come together as a united party under one leader at the very end and present a real clear clear alternative to Doug Ford and his conservatives and move forward with a new uh, a new government that respects uh, respects the the political discourse and restores decency here in Ontario to represent the interest of uh, of the citizens. Here. Michael, one last question, what would you say to those that are still scared of the Kathleen Wynne Liberals? I would say that uh, the Ontario Liberal Party has always played a role in uh, building this province. No one person owns this party. It's not my party. It's not anyone in this province. It's our party. And um, you have a role to play in rebuilding it. 
uh, from the ground up, and we need you now more than ever to volunteer uh, to get out there and to talk to people, and let's uh, let's build an alternative and restore decency in Ontario, and we can do that together. Michael Coteau has been with us, former Cabinet Minister, MPP for Don Valley East, now his hat in the ring for leadership of the Liberal uh, Provincial Liberal Party. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Appreciate it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.